0: So if you have a Bible this morning, please turn to John chapter 8 as we resume this dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders, those who might have believed in him. So John chapter 8, and we'll be starting in verse 37. While you're turning there, I don't know if you recognize this guy on the screen or not, but he has hosted one of the longest running daytime talk shows in television history. So this is Maury Povich. For 31 years, and over 5,500 episodes, he has become famous for the phrase, You are not the father. You pagans who know that. And I want myself in for that because I, I brought this up to several people this week and they knew it immediately. You are not the father, answering the question who is or is not the father to a certain woman's child or children. And so if you are righteous and you have not seen the show, the premise of this show has revolved around a child whose fraternity is in question. So a lady, a mother comes on who is unsure of who her baby's daddy really is. So over the course of 10 to 20 minutes over the show, the audience is introduced to the child, the mother, and the potential father, or a set of potential fathers, As the audience hears their story, they make judgments, they choose sides and wait with anticipation for the father or that scumbag to be revealed. So for three decades, Maury has made a living bringing to light these scandalous and salacious stories of love, betrayal, infidelity, and questionable paternity. The show really exposes the depravity of our society. It gives ample evidence to God's plan for the family, that we have ruined. We live in such a sin-sick world that this has become entertainment for some of us. But yet in this story, and you're like, where is this going to go? In this story, the central character, the most neglected character of the story is the child. This spectacle has put this child on display because he does not know who his father is. Because of immoral choices by the biological parents, they are deprived of knowing And relating to the true dad. That is a tragedy. So, fathers we know have a profound impact on their children by nature and by nurture. We often become like our fathers. We imitate them whether we know them or not. And the same phenomenon happens in our spiritual life. We imitate both by nature and nurture our spiritual father. Just like children, we will follow after and mimic and imitate, behave like our dad. It is therefore imperative for each one of us to know who our spiritual father truly is. We need a spiritual paternity test. So in our passage today, Jesus will get to this point. He will tell us that there are only two possible realities of that paternity test. We are either sons of God or children of the devil. And so if you will turn your eyes now to the Word. So John the Apostle writes in John chapter 8, starting in verse 37, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and am here. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So as Jesus and the leaders continue this conversation with one another, Jesus will press into several things. And so we will see the people here be confronted with a test. And we will see them appeal to their ancestry. So number one, we see this appeal to ancestry. We see their claim to be sons of Abraham. The Jewish people here twice claim to be descendants of Abraham in verse 33 and verse 39. It says, we are offspring of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. Because Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And we are one of them. And because the nation of Israel and its Jewish remnant could trace their physical ancestry back to Abraham, the man of God, they have inferred then that they are also the children of God. Because Abraham was a son of God, therefore they must be. 41, they claim this, we have one father, even God. And they make this claim because the Old Testament repeatedly refers to God as the father of Israel, and Israel as his son. So therefore, because they were Abraham's children... They had projected spiritual sonship and spiritual blessing onto their physical sonship. So they see the physical and spiritual privileges going together. They'd have spiritual blessings from Abraham simply because they were physically descended from him. And that didn't matter how they behaved or what they believed. This comes up a couple centuries after Jesus. In the second century, there is a Christian apologist named Justin Martyr. And Justin holds an argument with a Jewish leader named Trypho. And at the end of their discussion, Justin says this He says, The Jewish leaders beguile themselves and you, supposing that the everlasting kingdom will be given to those who are Abraham after the flesh, although they be sinners and be faithless and be disobedient toward God. So, in this discussion, according to their line of thinking, it was just the fact that they were Jewish and descended from Abraham. It didn't matter how they behaved or what they thought. They were therefore automatically be given the inheritance, the blessing, and the privileges of being sons, simply based on their physical lineage. It didn't matter how they acted or what their disposition was towards God. But Jesus doesn't allow them to go that far. He agrees, yes, they are children according to biology. Verse 37, he says... I know that you are offspring of Abraham. But this doesn't automatically translate into being sons according to the promise. For he says in 39, key, if you are Abraham's children. And the word if there is very important to this conversation. It comes up several times. If is conditional. Unless you meet these expectations, unless you meet these conditions, you are not Abraham's children, Jesus is saying. And Jesus begins to further prod them by using two different words here, offspring and children. The word offspring literally means seed. It's biological. The word children denotes that relationship within the family. He says, yes, you are offspring seed, but no, you are not children. You don't have a relationship. And so he's distinguishing the physical and the spiritual children of Abraham. Paul does something similar in Romans chapter 9. And so Romans chapter 9, here it's on the screen, he says... For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring. But the promise, through Abraham shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so while they could claim that they were descended from Abraham according to the flesh, that descent does not automatically translate into be grafted into the will Or the inheritance of Abraham. We see this in Abraham's physical family at the very beginning in Genesis. Isaac receives the promise, not Ishmael. Esau is rejected and hated. Jacob is the son who receives the promised blessing. So Jesus begins to chop down their family tree. He does this in order to show that their physical life, inherited from a spiritual giant, does not guarantee the reception of a giant spiritual inheritance. So you can come from a spiritual giant, but still be spiritually bankrupt. And the same is true for each one of us. We may have had parents or grandparents who are strong Christians and pillars in their churches, examples of godliness and righteousness, but that does not guarantee us spiritual life or blessing. We are not saved as a family unit. You're not saved as a collective group or a church or a nation. We're saved. Salvation is bestowed on the individual based on their faith and repentance. So some of you may be depending on your physical delivery from a godly and upright family to give you the heavenly blessing that you think you deserve. A deep spiritual heritage is of great value, but it will not bring bring you into the kingdom of God. Is your one birth short? This comes into play in a historical example from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is one of the great theological minds of the 1700s, perhaps the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. He died around 1758. And in 1900, a group of scholars decided to check out his family tree, his lineage. And so when they did this research, they found something very interesting. So from Jonathan Edwards and his wife, his legacy includes 100 clergymen, 100 lawyers, 60 doctors, 65 professors, two college deans, three governors, three U.S. senators, 13 college presidents, three mayors of major cities, and one U.S. vice president. But it's interesting that that vice president was one of the most notorious men of the founding era, Aaron Burr. And so you may remember Aaron Burr as the murderer of your beloved Alexander Hamilton. He was a devout atheist and hated Christianity. He was actually tried for treason after he killed Hamilton, and then a little later decided to set himself up as the emperor of Mexico. Not exactly a stellar reputation from a grandson of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. It was said of Aaron Burr of this. He says, Eight lines of clergymen converged to meet in Aaron Burr, but Aaron was Beelzebub in mocking miniature. Not exactly the epitaph that you want on your tombstone. So you can see that physical descent does not guarantee spiritual success. So if the Jewish people here are not sons of Abraham, if they're not children of God, then who's their daddy? Much like Aaron Burr, they are in Reality, the devil, in mocking miniature. So in reality, Jesus is saying that they are sons of the devil. Yes, acknowledging their biological connection to Abraham, but denying that they are true sons of God. He repeatedly tells them that they have a different father. 38, verse 41, 42. Yet they continue to appeal, No, 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 God's our father. Listen to their strong denial in verse 41. Look at 41 again. He says, They say, We are not born of sexual morality." We have one Father, even God. So this reply to them works on two levels. First, throughout the Old Testament, we see spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality combined. So idolatry was sexual adultery against God. To serve other gods was the equivalent to committing fornication. So by by denying here that they are sons of immorality, they're saying that we are not sons of some false god or some idol. We are sons of the true God. And on another level, this is working, they're insulting or rebuking Jesus. Because of the uncertain details around Jesus' birth, there's some insinuation here that Jesus was actually a result of an illicit sexual liaison. They're saying, oh, we're not born of sexual immorality like some people we know. But all in all, they're doubling down on their claim that we are sons of Abraham and sons of God. So much like they did earlier, demanding that, no, we're not slaves. We are free. Jesus is starting to poke at and burst their bubble. He's going to tell them that, no, you're not sons of God. Something far more nefarious is going on. You are sons of Satan. In verse 44, he comes right out and says it. You are sons of your father, the devil. And it's an incredibly bold statement. It's one of the reasons they pick up rocks to kill him at the end of the chapter. So it's one thing to kind of debunk their claim that they're sons of God. It's something totally different to say, yeah, you're sons of Beelzebub. But Jesus is saying, there's really no other alternative. Either we are sons of God, or we are sons of the devil. There are only two ways to live. You are born from above, Jesus says earlier, or you're born from below. Yet if you ask most people, if you were to go out on the street downtown today, and you were asked, well, who are you a son of? Well, people, if they believed in a God or some God, they say, well, I'm a child of God. And we know this when asked, who are you? The high priestess of our secular age says this, and that high priestess being Oprah. She said this in a college commitment a couple years ago. She says this, this is on the screen, who am I really? My answer is that I am God's child. I am that which is born of all that is. I am a spiritual being having a human experience and understanding I am connected to all that is. All that is possible is possible for me. There's a whole lot to unpack in that. And we could spend the rest of the day debunking all the garbage that comes from that. But the thing is, she says, no, I'm, a God. I'm God's child. It's a common thought among many. If, if there is a God and he created all this, then we must be my, by necessity be his children. Whatever he, she, it may be, then I too am that. And if there is something that is possible, I am allowed to become that possibility. That's completely antithetical to biblical thought. While we are all creatures of God, we are not born children of God. The Bible continually affirms that we naturally, meaning born in the flesh, we are all enemies of God. Children of His wrath, not His blessing. We're children of disobedience and unrighteousness. We hate God and we hate others. That's a far cry from being part of the family. And because of this hostile relationship, because of our birth, the things of God are closed off to us. We we consider His ways foolish. We suppress the truth. We suppress His majesty. We refuse to see His beauty. There's nothing in us, naturally, that wants to follow God. We have rejected Him as our Father, and we are separated from Him. So left to ourselves, without the intervention of God's mercy and work, we are destined to be cast out of the house forever. That's what Jesus tells us earlier. This makes us slaves of servants, not to God, but to sin. Not freed sons of the holy God. All because naturally, by the flesh, we are descended from our natural father, the devil. And you may be thinking, the devil? We can to really talk about the devil. We live in an increasingly secularizing culture, right? One that casts off the supernatural as something that needs to be suppressed, or ignored, or ridiculed, or explained away. Belief in some powerful devil with a little red tail and a pitchfork and horns. How outdated and old-fashioned are you people? In 2013, a survey was taken of Americans, and they were asked, Do you believe in the devil? And it's interesting that only 57% of those Americans believed that there was a devil. And as you look at the respondents, the younger the respondent got, the less likely they were to believe in the devil. That was nine years ago. I think that number 57% is probably a little lower even today. Most people will recognize that yeah evil exists in the world but they will deny some personality behind it. So they if they kick out all the supernatural if there's no god there's no devil then evil is just suffering it's war it's malice it's hatred it's a result of living some kind of chaotic random universe. But Christianity has always affirmed the presence and personhood of an enemy. Satan, the accuser, Lucifer. Evil is not some out-of-control force. It's not fatalistic chance. It's not a natural result of molecules just bumping into one another. Wickedness and evil have a source from a person, the fallen angel, Lucifer. In uh, the preface, uh, preface of the screw Tape Letter, C.S. Lewis says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we can deny him outright, or we can see a devil behind every bush. But I think, most of the people that I've talked to over the years, they deny the devil altogether. There's no real evil. There's no real Satan. There's no real devil. So in the, the movie, the, uh, the Usual Suspects. So go back to your 1990s movie trivia. I don't recommend this movie, but it gives a really good point to this. So the movie ends with the reveal of a true villain. And so this villain has been hiding in plain sight throughout the entire movie. He is the criminal mastermind who's been orchestrating everything behind the scenes. And he's hiding behind this lie that he's only a myth. And so as the movie closes, the line that sticks with the audience is this. He says, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. And like, he's gone. I think that's where we are today. Satan has made belief in himself unbelievable. But Jesus is emphatic that Satan is alive and well, and he's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And naturally, according to the flesh, and in our first birth, we all lie under his power, under his sway. So left to ourselves, we are all sons of the devil, and without rescue from Jesus, we will continue to serve, worship, and become just like that father. We often say, remember, like father, like son. We mimic and follow the footsteps of our parents. We pick up their good habits and their bad. We may walk like them and talk like them and act like them, for better or worse. And Jesus is telling the crowd here and warning us That naturally we follow in the footsteps of this Father according to our first birth. We do the things that He does. We speak in the ways that He speaks. We want many of the same things that He wants. And our destiny will be the same without the intervention of God Himself. So, what does it look like to mimic and follow the devil? And how do we be on guard from being satanic? And most importantly, how do we become children of God? Let's look at those in turn. So first of all, Jesus will offer three different tests to determine what child you are. So let's look secondly at the test of paternity. Jesus will give three here, a test of love, a test of hearing, and a test of obedience. And these examinations will not, or the results of these examinations won't be as recognizable as you may think. And so the serpent is more craftier than any other creature in our universe. The temptation to follow him is, not, is more seductive and not as obvious as you may think. And so if someone were to come into your small group next week and they were to confess this, and they said, You know, last night, a goat-headed demon with cloven feet and horns stood at the foot of my bed. He told me that if I were to abandon everything to worship him and to pledge my soul to him by offering my firstborn child, I would have all the kingdoms of the world. And he went... <laughs> You get a little nervous, right? You start shifting your chair over. You start texting Troy and I, hey, send the security team to room one of whatever. <laughs> Fidelity to the devil is not as revealing as some guy having a goat-headed demon stand at the foot of his bed. It doesn't look as demonic as it appears on the surface. So what does it look like? So Jesus gives three tests here. First of all, he gives a test of love. He gives a test of love. In verse 42, he says this, again, if... God were your father, then you would love me. The way Jesus constructs this sentence shows the people that they were not welcoming him. They did not love him. In fact, they hated him. Hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. There was no affection for Jesus in their hearts, no place for him in their theological framework. They could not stand the sight of him. Their minds were already made up. He can't be who he says he is. There's no way this is the Messiah. This cannot be the Son of God. This is not the Savior of our people. He's a demon-possessed fool and a sinner. He deserves to die because He is the spawn of the Lord of the flies, not us. The Jews offer no welcome, no hospitality to Jesus. It's a complete rejection of Him and His Word. It's a cancellation of everything He says and does. This is the first indication that they are not born of God. Whoever welcomes the Son of God welcomes God the Father. And so throughout the past few chapters, Jesus is reiterating this point. If we reject the Son, we reject the Father. If we throw Jesus out, we throw the Father out as well. We see this in verse 42 here. I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Early in the chapter, in verse 19, he says, Therefore they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. For if you knew me, you would know my Father also. So the first test here centers around the affection for Jesus. The leaders in the crowd have no fondness for him. They have no attraction to his beauty, to his righteousness. In fact, they believe wickedness about him. They malign his character and accuse him of sin. Yet Jesus stands up and says something very bold in verse 46. He says, which one of you accuses me of sin? And notice there's no answer to that question. And we could preach a whole sermon just on that question. No one can level a charge against him. No one can stand up to the fight. They're just lobbing insults at this point. There's no love for God. There's no love for his son. And this reveals their true pedigree. To reject the son is to reject the father. So what about us? This test should bring sobriety to our lives as well, how do we view Jesus? Do we have love and affection for him? Is that love and affection growing? Or do we reject him, oppose him, or simply do we just ignore him? We kind of pick him up a couple days a week. Do we use Jesus for some greater end? Paul tells us later to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Part of saving faith is an affection for and delight in the beauty, the majesty, and the person and mercy of God. Our love for God the Father is reflected in our love and joy and delight in the Son. Christianity is not some cold, intellectual, harsh religion void of all gladness and pleasure. In fact, it's the opposite. It's full satisfaction and joy. Remember, Jesus says, He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. Whoever comes to him will never hunger or thirst. So the the question on this test is, do we hunger and thirst after Jesus? Do we welcome him into every corner of our life? Is he our greatest treasure? That's the first test, a test of love. Second, he gives a test of hearing, a hearing test. You've probably all sat in one of these, right? You get in a little booth, put the headphones on, the little beeps come in, and you raise your finger, raise your hand, and they tell you how deaf you are. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving them a, a test of hearing, and He shows that they can't perceive His words. They can't hear what He's talking about. Verse 46 and 47. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe Me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He's saying that you're deaf, you're dumb, you're blind to the reality of these words. They could not and would not hear and comprehend the message that he was bringing. While they could listen to what he was audibly saying, they could not pick up what he was laying down. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? This is key. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They're unable to hear God's word, and they're unwilling to to listen. Their minds are darkened, their ears are stopped, their eyes are closed. So why are we naturally unable to hear the words of God? It's because our natural father, the devil, has blinded us and stopped our ears. Paul gets to this point again in 2 Corinthians when he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it's saying that Satan has blinded us and stopped ears. we can't hear and we can't see. So does that mean we're excused from this test? If we're demonically prohibited from hearing the words of Jesus, we can say, Well, the devil made me do it. I'm off the hook. Not my fault. I get a pass. No. None of us are without excuse. For while the devil distracts and deafens us from hearing the word of God, we also willingly reject his call. We are actively opposed to God in our natural flesh. When we stop our ears and ignore the words of God, it proves that we are not from God. For the children of God listen to commands and instruction from their Father. Like we saw last week, true followers, true disciples of God, abide in his word. He tells us that in verse 31. And as we examine ourselves this morning, as we take this test, we must first assess our ability to hear God's word, and two, gauge our commitment to that word. So assess to see, can we hear him at all? And two, are we really committed to this? So if we have neglected to read, study, memorize, or meditate on God's word, that may be an indication that we are not God's children, Because children delight in hearing from their father. And if we have listened to and sat under sermons and Bible studies and small group lessons and never or rarely been moved to love God more, to know him more, to become more like him, then we may not have ears to hear what he is telling us. I encourage you to read through and meditate on Psalm 119 this week. And as you read, ask yourself if your attitude, if your disposition is like that of the psalmist. Does our life resonate with these truths? So here's just a few examples here. So David says in Psalm 119 verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So this is his pledge to God. And then a little later, he will pray for God to work in his life. And hear this prayer. He says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with, all my whole, with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So as you read and meditate on this, ask yourself, Do I have this attitude? Do I pray these things for God to work in my life, to give me understanding? So how we respond to this test, how we respond to God's commandments shows if we're really God's children. Do we have ears to hear? Do we want to have ears to hear? Praying these commandments opens our ears to Him and allows us to obey them. And so this is our third test. We have a test of love, a test of hearing, and a test of obedience. This last test comes out of the first two. If we love Jesus and we hear his words, then we will obey him out of love for him. Affection for and devotion to Jesus and his words result in action. Jesus gets to this point in verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. So Jesus implies that they were doing what was in opposition to Abraham. In fact, Jesus puts it clearly in verse 42. You are doing the works of your father. Your will is to do Your father's desires, he says in verse 44. And what are those desires? What's the will of the devil? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we see that the works of the devil are lies and murder. He's been doing this from the very beginning of time. He lies to Adam and Eve in the garden, tempting them to question God's goodness, his wisdom, his provision promising them life, he brings death. And not death to Adam and Eve, but death to the entire human race. The devil is essentially the murderer of all mankind. Cain killing his brother Abel is just the first glimpse, the first example of this murderous rampage. Additionally, Satan spews out all of these lies, and we see this working out its way into our time today. I mean, just think of the unlawful and inhumane invasion of Ukraine the murder of millions of unborn babies in the womb under the lie of a woman's choice, the celebration of deviant sexual practices contrary to God's creation with the lie that this will make you happy, the promotion of gender transitions in children under the lie, just be yourself. Satan is at work today masquerading as an angel of light, spreading lies. And these lies say sin will satisfy. Wickedness is really righteousness. Personal autonomy is freedom. The lie that that God's not good. You be the God you want to be. And perhaps the most monstrous lie of all, you will not surely die. But all of these are lies. All of them lead to death, physical and temporal. This is the work of the devil. So when we apply this test to ourselves, I'm not going to say, at least I hope not, that we're all not lying, murderous demons. I don't think you are. When we think of the works of the devil, we often think of things that happened like in the satanic panic of the 1980s. Any of you alive to remember that episode? That yet wild stories of child sexual abuse, ritual killings in the church of Satan, if you spun your Metallica or hard rock metal backwards, there's demonic messages in them. Dungeons and Dragons are like the entryway to the satanic underbelly of the world. Now, we think that satanic things are just kind of these broad, gross, just kind of obvious things. So I'm never going to do that. I don't think any of you are going to go home and participate in some ritualistic killing in your basement. I don't think you're going to go to some sex cult or trafficking ring. You're not going to consult your Ouija board out of the closet. I don't think that's us, but we must remember that in reality, all sin in all of its forms, and especially those most respectable sins, are all satanic. Gossip, self-promotion, bitterness, discontentment, ingratitude, promoting promoting false conspiracy theories, character assassination on social media through innuendo or outright lies, causing dissension in the church. All of these and more are just as deadly or more murderous to our souls and to others around us. Do not be deceived. The works of the devil are more prevalent, more sinister, and more deadly than we often realize. It's not just out there in the serial killer, the totalitarian dictator, or the some sex cult that we see on TV. At its heart, all forms of sin mimic the devil and show our true colors. John, again, the apostle, in his first epistle points this fact. He says in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, for he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The thrust here is to say that children never sin. It's not to say that they don't sin, because John uh, agrees that they do. He says, if they do sin, they have an advocate with the Father to forgive them. What John is getting at here is says, Christians, as children of God, do not make a practice. They don't make a habit of sin. Their lives are not characterized or colored by sin. They are colored by righteousness. The key question on this test is, do I hate my sin or do I relish it? Do I confess it or do I cover it up? Do I make a practice of obeying God's word in repentance and faith, or do I ignore it? The final test Jesus lays out here is one of works. It's obedience, the same obedience that Abraham did. What were the works Abraham did? Well, He welcomed God. He followed the voice of God. He trusted God. He had complete faith in God. And that faith was credited to him as righteousness in the same way it will be for us. The works of God, Jesus says earlier, is to believe in the one he sent. So by examining ourselves, to look at our actions, to look at our words, we all serve someone. Be certain, our deeds will find us out. Whatever we sow will reveal our true family allegiance. So do we practice sin or do we practice righteousness? Righteousness. These tests off, offer a very sobering reflection on our lives. They re- reveal our true patrimony. So when we come onto the stage, when the envelope is opened and it says, Who's the father? What are the results going to say about you? If we find ourselves to be children of the devil and not children of God, how do we change families? So our third and last point here is a transfer of family. Because there is good news, there is a way to become the children of God. Jesus promised and guarantees that we can and will become sons of God if we trust in Him. If we welcome Him, if we love Him, if we follow Him, if we obey Him, if we revel in His Word. But the promise comes in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So to become a child of God, we must receive Jesus, welcome Him, accept him, trust him. The biblical word here is faith, or belief. And the complementary side of faith and belief is repentance from sin. In many baptismal vows, in many church customs, in repentance, there's always a repudiation of the devil. A turning away from all sin, of all evil, of all wickedness. When we trust in Christ for salvation and adoption into his family, we are renouncing our former commitments. We're saying, that family, I have nothing to do with anymore. We reject, we sever all ties with following Satan. We've transferred out of one kingdom into another. From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And notice who's the driving force behind this transfer? It's not us. It's not our will. It's not our power. It's not our ability. It's all from God. Jesus says you must be born from above. Born of God and made sons of God by the will of God and the power of God. It's a one-sided transfer here. It's a guarantee that he will adopt us into his family forever. Freed forever. Never to go back. Never to be reversed. It is permanent. And notice the promise here. All. All who call, all who receive, all who believe will be made children of God. If he has called you, if, he has, if you've renounced your commitment to Satan and have trusted Christ, you will be his child. This is the promise that we revel in. Paul gets right to the point, and I can't say it any better than him, so we'll go here. Galatians chapter 3, he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Total counter to what the religious leaders were talking about. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Those few paragraphs sum up the past two weeks that we've looked at in John chapter 8. God, in his mercy, in his grace, has transferred us out and made us sons, not of the devil, but of the Lord. We've been adopted into the family by the work of Christ. And if we've become sons, if we've become daughters, if we've become children of God, we don't go back to our former father. We don't go back to our old ways, we've renounced those, we've cut them off. We don't go back to slavery. We don't follow them anymore. We continue to walk in obedience. We revel in His love and delight in the new Son and the new Father. We stop acting according to our old nature and live by righteousness and holiness. So therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, because God Loves and adores you. So often on Maury's show, when he would reveal that that man was not the father, several things would happen. Sometimes when that guy found out he was not the father, he would get really excited, rejoice, and even dance. And it became like this trope, this theme throughout the show. They were ecstatic, they're not responsible for that kid. But the other trope you saw on the other side, when it was revealed that 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 guy was not the dad, he says, I don't care. I want to be dad to that kid. I love that guy. I'll adopt him. I'll make him mine. Naturally, none of us are sons and daughters of God. When we're born, the the paternity test says of the devil, not of God. And there's nothing beautiful or cute or alluring about ourselves that commends ourselves to God. He should want nothing to do with us. And we might think, well, he's going to dance off the stage saying, don't have to take responsibility for that one. That's the farthest thing from the truth. Despite our unrighteousness, despite our natural affinity with the devil, there's a heavenly father who stands up and says, no, I love him. I'll adopt him. In fact, I'll send my own son to make him mine. I will bring him into my family. He will be mine and with me forever. Nothing and no one could ever change that. This is the Father that we have. This is the Heavenly Father who is a good, good Father. No longer do we have a Father who uses, abuses, lies, and destroys us. United to Christ, we have a Heavenly Father who loves, cares, and speaks truth to us. We have a Father who calls us by name, and we are His. Now go out and live in that freedom and that responsibility. Revel in the love of your Father. Let's pray.